0: Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. Today, in our penultimate episode about the 19th century, I'm going to talk about changes to home and work, and otherwise, changes to everyday life. The big story is this. As the market expands, as urbanization happens, as work changes become because of cheap energy, you also get cultural changes. You get changes to the way that people live their everyday life. One of the big things is that spaces of work and leisure and home start to get more firmly marked out. People work for wages at particular places, at particular times, where they fill particular roles, and then they leave these places, times, and roles, and they have unorganized life. Leisure time, leisure time, whichever one of those pronunciations I'm going to end up using. But this division of life into work and play and home is not some, you know, simple mathematical calculation predetermined by the economic gods. It doesn't simply happen because of the efficiency of this particular way of organization. There is a clear act of political contestation about who belongs where and when, and there are contradictions within the way that these lines get drawn in the 19th century that have important political consequences. The big story here is the separation of the spheres. Middle-class morality suggests that women do best when they stay at home, where they act as a moral bulwark against the corruption of the city. And so, middle class morality suggests that men go out and work and they work hard enough and smart enough to get a wage to support women and children at home where they are allowed to have their own kind of life independent of the market. This is increasingly viable as cheap energy increases the amount of stuff that each individual person does. But it's not entirely viable because this middle-class home is based on the outside labor of poor servants. Furthermore, domestic life becomes something that is an object of outside reform. People start to worry about what happens in the home and try through civil society actions, through the actions of government, through the actions of work, to reform the way that people work and live, to push this idea of there being a protected sphere where women and children are not allowed to have the same sort of relationship with the market and we can connect these processes with the stuff that we were talking about last episode about the expansion of information networks. Because of the spread of new kinds of information, people start to see themselves and others not as merely, you know, representatives of a particular kind of hierarchy or particular locality, but rather as examples of translocal groups. Skilled workers, children, mothers, Britons, and it's these translocal groups that people are trying to reform, understand, and change. So let's talk first about the separation of the spheres. The old story is that due to the influence of evangelism in the early 19th century and the rise of the middle class, that we get a idea that women should stay at home Uh, where they will act as the moral grounding of the house. The idea is that women are the angel of the house who, through their emancipatory drudgery of keeping everyone and everything morally and physically clean, will help to make the family unit whole. Men go out and work... Uh, make money and interact with the potentially uh, uh, morally reprehensible city, but then they come home where they are refreshed by their domestic life, where they come home to their wives and children and play and get to like feed on the actual like you know moral core of their beings. Now that story is true. There is the development of this uh, ideal of a home, but we have to mention a lot of caveats about that. The first is that even in the classic middle-class home where this happens, the only way that you're able to get a clean, well-functioning home is through the outside work of wage-earning servants, mostly women. Uh, In fact, some definitions of the middle-class describe them as people who keep servants in the home. The servant is an incredibly integral part of the middle-class household, and they're kind of the, the the fly in the ointment of the separation of the spheres. Because even if we think that, look, there's a separation of the spheres where men work outside of the home and women work in the home, the middle-class home that this is the ideal type of is Running through the outside labor of women, women who go to a a middle class home to work and to earn a wage. Um, And furthermore, this looks even weirder when you also account for all of the external labor that the middle class house hold runs on. All of the charwomen who go door to door doing laundry, for instance. All of the cooks who cook food on the street for people. All of that, you know, infrastructure of employment that is unseen that actually makes the middle house run. That being said, I just want to suggest a reason for the development of this ideology, which looks even weirder when we admit that it rests on the labor of servants. So I think that the separation of the spheres happens starting in the 18th century due to worries about threats to the future-oriented, abstentious self-control that's necessary for a person to be middle class. Now when we think about middle class, we think about it from this perspective of today, where there's relatively little social mobility. And when you hear that, when you hear me talking about relatively low social mobility, you probably think that that is a bad thing. But on the other hand, we usually think of social mobility as people going up. The worry in the 19th century for the middle class home were the next generation going down, losing the particular kind of hard-earned orientation to the world and to work that got people successful. And why would they lose that? Because the cities where middle-class service providers lived were filled with temptations that seemed tailor-made to destroy those very values. Drink, Prostitutions, bad loans, expensive goods, the world of advertising and play and... All of these things threatened to take young men especially and subvert them away from middle class life to instead adopt the display and, you know, richness of the upper classes without having the actual financial resources to do so. And this destroyed middle class families. People would see it all the time. People would see young heirs throwing away their inheritance over trifles and they were worried about it. And so some middle classes started to attempt to reform the city itself. Here we get attempts to reform the manners of the lower classes, to push people to uh, 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 not swear in their daily life, to honor the Sabbath, to not get too drunk, to not celebrate weird holidays. But these you know, were not entirely successful. And so one of the other moves that middle classes made was to separate out the home, was to make the home its own place where young men and women could learn the values that they needed to be middle class people. And they were taught these values by women. Women became the moral exemplars of the home. And you can see the Proof of this in a related response because once women became the moral bulwark of the home, once women became the people who inculcated the values of middle class life, there was a worry because women were usually thought to be, you know, too fashion conscious, irrational, not capable of planning, not capable of holding property. And so there was a certain irony in having them, you know, be the people who instill the values of hard work, future orientation, and rationality into the next generation of men. And the solution of this was to make spheres or spaces of education outside of female control. The solution of this is the peculiar tradition of upper class uh, boarding schools in Britain. Here, young boys would be sent. Away from home, away from the corrupting influence of women, and also away from the corrupting influence of the city, where they could go to an all-masculine, all-virtuous place where they would be taught how to be real men. Now, of course, there were worries about this, too, which people got from actually watching what happened to young boys go to public schools. People worried about masturbation, people worried about gambling, drinking, homosexuality, and people worried, again, that these public schools were not teaching middle class values, but were instead teaching upper class values that were inappropriate for the account-minded middle classes. And there were efforts to make the world of work a masculine and adult place to save women and children. These start in the 1830s, and they're always halting. Um, They're not ever complete uh, up until the 20th century. Ultimately, they're successful with children and uh, less successful with women. Um, I'm just going to run through some of these acts. In 1833, there was the Factory Act, which uh, limited Uh, working hours of children in textiles, and established a series of inspectorates who would go out to factories to make sure that the rules were being followed. In 1844, uh, it was extended so that children 8 to 13 could not work for more than six hours a day. And it also expanded it to women who could not work more than 12 hours a day and who actually could have no night work. In 1847, it was uh, uh, extended again. Um, In 1867, it was extended to uh, uh, cover all workhouses. And in 1901, it was extended uh, all across the board with a reduction of the minimum age to 12. Um, This is alongside expansion of government-provided education. Um, This long story here is that you get first the creation of board schools, which are meant to fill in the gaps uh, left by private education. And slowly these become um, their own kind of sponsored state schools that offer education for all. What this leads to is it leads to a norm where children are not expected to work. The children's work is an aberration, uh, even a violence, the same way that we would think about the work of eight-year-olds and 13-year-olds today. And this changes the very conception of the child. The child is no longer an economic benefit to the family, which it was for the majority of the 19th century, but a burden, but a thing to be cared for. Um, Childhood becomes its own sacred space. Uh, Its own stage of life completely independent for the others, where people play, live outside the market, don't have to work, just have to go to school, and it becomes the family's duty to support and protect the special sphere of child life. Children get their own clothes, they get their own holidays like Christmas and birthdays, they have their own food like tapioca. Childhood becomes something different. It becomes weird to see children smoking on the street. You get laws passed uh, establishing age of sexual consent for children because children are no longer thought to be just little adults who have the same kinds of sexual desires as normal adults. But this is not a story of, you know, unrelenting progress because children actually provided a lot of good for families when they worked. Uh, Working class families would often um, have an increase in net calories when one of their children was old enough to go off and work in the factory because children could provide really important supplemental wages. And it wasn't that children were necessarily destroyed by their participation in the workforce. It would give them experience in working in a trade, experience with time discipline, and honor and success when they were able to provide for the family. But now let's talk about the other bugbear. We've talked about the separation of the spheres and how it creates Uh, privileged spaces for women and children where they are protected from the market for their own good, even if it's not for their own good. But now let's just briefly talk about the more familiar story of changes to work that happened because of the Industrial Revolution, or in uh, my conception of it, changes that happened to work because of the capital-biased, energy-biased development of the coal-based development block. Now, why is that an important distinction to make? Well the old story has it that everything changes because of factories and machines so people then look for changes of work in the cotton mills where you get new ways of working new time disciplines new uh, uh, uh extensions of Uh, exploitation to, to working people. But you ignore then the vast majority of people who do not work in factories, who remain working in craft industries, who remain working in farming and domestic service. If we expand it, though, to think of a capital and energy bias development, then we can see these changes in laboring practices affecting more than simply mechanized factories. They can affect, for example, breweries and other Large uh, combinations of agricultural uh, labor, uh, which are able to expand because they are now able to use the cheap energy of coal. Bakeries can get bigger and bigger and bigger because they are not limited by uh, the amount of wood that they can get. They're not limited by the amount of grain after 1870 and the liberalization of the grain trade. In all of these new ways of working, you get the replacement of skill with energy. And this affects female workers perhaps the most. If you think of those trades that are gendered female in the 18th century, they often require a lot of hand-eye coordination and repetitive exact uh, uh, manual dexterity. You have uh, straw plating, lace making, sewing, weaving. All of these things are gendered female, spinning. And they're gendered female because they are uh, uh, things that do not require brute strength and uh, are things that are based on one of the 18th and 19th century women's uh, major skills, that of sewing. These are really easy to replace by machines. First, machines replace only the lowest skilled and lowest quality examples of these products. But as machines get increasingly Better throughout the 19th century, more and more people get forced out of these craft industries. And those people are increasingly women. But it's also a story of men being forced out of skilled labor through uh, the advance of machinery. But not everywhere. There's a lot of craft industries that go the other route, that use some machines, that use some capital, but rely on highly skilled artisans to use that uh, Uh, capital, to use those machines in flexible ways to look at flexible markets. A great example of this is the toy industry, toys by by which we mean small metal goods that are often influenced by fashion. Here we get, you know, a couple of of large industrial machines, but uh, they uh, are served by flexible, highly skilled artisans. Now, The big story here is the rise of time discipline, the rise of work as a separate space, and the rise of wage labor. Uh, We don't need to belabor that because we have talked about that in a previous episode. So now I want to talk briefly about the home. We have two big changes to the actual way that people live. First is that uh, people become increasingly geographically isolated by class throughout the 19th century. This happens both regionally. Uh, different people work in different ways in different areas. The north becomes the site of industrial production, and the south. Uh, continues to be a place where services are more likely to be uh, the primary way of, of of making a living, but also within urban areas themselves, you get an increased stark divide between different neighborhoods. Uh, the big one to mention is the divide between the East End and the West End in London, where the West End is this glimmering land of uh, you know privilege and uh, aristocracy, and the East End is this open sore of poverty and crisis. But you get this over and over again in the 19th century. Imagine that image that you have in your head of the uh, terraced houses in factory districts that look all the same, where you have men and women who are dressed all the same, peeking out of their doors This vast stretch of monotony that for us is really telling because it mirrors the monotony that we take factory labor to be. But it's even more than simply new neighborhoods that are planned for working class people. It is the colonization by working class people of neighborhoods that were made for other kinds of people. Uh, Big mansion houses are separated out into tenements, uh, divided and subdivided again, where families have one or two rooms to themselves and share a big, big house. That is one of the big ways that working class people find their uh, inhabitants. Uh, inhabitants, housing in the 19th century. And this leads, I think, to one of those big changes in material life that affects all of uh, politics and culture. Because when people are living day to day and seeing only other people like themselves, it becomes a lot easier to think uh, of uh, social divisions as based on labor or work or place of living. And similarly, these new geographic spaces, uh, these segregated geographic spaces become the object of social concern. We can see here the old story of data being generated about it. You get people going off into this you know, other world of darkest London with surveys, measuring how many people are in a room and generating statistics that makes people scared about what's going on in there. That makes the reality of these new areas transportable, uh, that makes that reality understandable, that makes that reality something that we can imagine as a social fact. And you get a bunch of different ways of attempting to reform uh, these uh, new slums. One is the settlement house, where you get middle and upper class women actually going out into uh, these neighbourhoods and living there and attempting to teach people the middle class values that they think will help them rise up out of poverty. This is one of the huge stories of the late 19th century. You have Toynbee House in London, uh, which inspires Hull House in Chicago. But you also get uh, the impact of what we might call other kinds of scientific management onto the lives of the poor big one here is the rise of the scientific diet the idea that nutritionists can tell through their understanding of what actually makes food valuable the kinds of diets that working class people should feed their families although we can see the callousness of this because their nutritional understanding is you know, not as advanced as ours. And they believed that, say, vegetables were not actually healthy because they didn't know about micronutrients. They thought that vegetables were just like a frivolous addition to people's diets and not a necessary, you know, thing that helped people uh, survive. And similarly, because they focused on fat and protein and carbohydrates, they thought that uh, things like meat and beer were you know, gross extravagances. And that if these people in these areas stopped spending their money on meat and beer and instead spent their money on housing, then everybody would be better off because it would give more money to build nicer houses. Of course, that's incredibly callous because as we know today about our debates about uh, the diets of the poor, their preference for McDonald's and sugar, one of the real reasons why you have let's say, bad eating, and I'm giving real scare quotes there, like eating beef when you don't have enough money for your home, or drinking beer, is because it gives pleasure and control over lives that are otherwise limited and constrained. Now, I'm going to close with a listener question, um, because I think that it helps tie all of this in together through a concrete and very familiar example. Friend of the show John asks, why did Christmas become a recognizably modern Christmas in the 19th century? And I think in answering that, we can touch on a lot of the themes that I've brought up in this episode, the urbanization, the expansion of the market, and the separation of the domestic from working. First, I want to emphasize that uh, there never was a traditional Christmas to destroy. Christmas was always changing. Um, we can see, for example, things that we take as like very traditional ancient practices like the Wassail Bowl as arising relatively late in the 16th or even 17th century. So we should make it very clear that we're not talking about a sudden change to modern Christmas. What we're talking about is a particular set of Christmas practices developing in the middle of the 19th century that then become roughly stable. And I want to rest this on the material reasons why Christmas is Uh, celebrated in the middle of winter, what the real reason for the season is. Of course, our religious members will say, well, it's because of, you know, the celebration of of Christmas, the, the celebration of the birth of Christ. But that, you know, just pushes the level of explanation further down. Why is Christmas one of the tentpole holidays of the calendar today and not other religiously important holidays like the far more religiously important holiday of Easter? Easter is celebrated now only by religious people. Christmas is celebrated by everyone. So let's think about the material uh, grounding of Christmas. Why is Christmas in winter? Well, Christmas is a winter feast. And it makes a lot of sense just by the, the material conditions of winter. In winter, it's time to slaughter animals because there is less food around and the meat keeps for longer because it is colder. And so wintertime, especially the middle of December, is a place where lots of people get cheap meat. Um, in the diets of some of the very poor, Christmas time is one of the few times when they can eat meat regularly. Uh, it's a, I don't have the data on me right now, but uh, it is the biggest slaughtering period of the entire year. And it's also dark and cold. And depressing. And so people've learned to chase away the dark and the cold by uh, being with their family and drinking and lighting stuff, making things bright. And we need to remember that in England and Scotland, it gets much darker than we think it would because England and Scotland are on the same uh, latitude as Canada is. They're very far north. They get really dark really quickly. I remember walking home at four in the afternoon, I think, and it being dark out when I lived in Oxford. And so the darkness is a bigger emotional problem in Northern Europe than it is, say, in California. And before electric lights, the darkness was was much more solid. It was something that actually took effort to beat back. And so Christmas is this moment of gathering together, eating readily available meat, chasing away depression, and being in concentrated places where you can spend a lot of money illuminating houses. In the 18th century, as people moved to cities, you start to get changes in this material base of Christmas. Uh, Increasingly, public spaces were removed from the ritual order in favor of private spaces. Uh, This shifted Christmas celebrations into churches and into the home. But the shift to modern Christmas comes in the 19th century when local domestic Christmas arrangements get uh, taken up by the national media. Uh, These become regularized through newspapers and magazines and stories that spread particular images of Christmas that very quickly become models for what Christmas should be. And you can tell how deeply ingrained these are by the fact that you know these uh, cultural uh, 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 elements. You know the picture of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert around the Christmas tree that this Germanic custom of a Christmas tree de- de- decorated by lights at, under which you exchange presents from Germany to Britain. There We can follow uh, an engraved image of Victorian Albert around the Christmas tree and show how it encourages people to get their own Christmas trees. You also get the story of Dickens' Christmas Carol, which when you read it is really odd because none of the stuff that they do is stuff that we do on Christmas, but we still take it to be emblematic of the modern Christmas. What's important about it is that Christmas in the Dickens' Christmas Carol is celebrated in the home. It is a symbol of the morality of home-based domestic life. And similarly, you have the night before Christmas. This creates an industry of Christmas cards, Christmas presents, Christmas books, all recycling the same kinds of images, which is how you get the modern Christmas. It is a meme. It is uh, a meme that is spread by an, uh, an expanding national market. And that national market, I should scratch that and say an international market, because this, these Christmas practices are celebrated all across the Anglosphere. Everywhere where English people speaking people settled, you get Christmas. And it happens too in the formal and informal empire. As you go around the world, you'll see Christmas repeated in all of the places where Anglo-American culture has had the greatest effects. Uh, Sometimes this can be odd, like in uh, Japan, where Christmas is associated with Colonel Sanders and KFC, or in Korea, where Christmas is Uh, now considered a couple's holiday, a holiday specifically for lovers like uh, Valentine's Day. But let's zoom out and just consider Christmas from the perspective of this episode. Christmas is a natural holiday, a natural holiday, a holiday that people have because of how it feels to live in the middle of winter. People would get together, I think, during Christmas time no matter what, What happens is that this natural holiday gets changed through its participation in the national information market that spins it in a particular kind of cultural fashion. And in this same way, changes to domestic life through uh, the expansion of cheap energy work are also spun in particular kinds of cultural ways, through the ideas of the breadwinner household, the separation of the spheres, and the segregation of the urban landscape. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, tweet at me at, at Mackey Teacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-A-C-H-E-R. Uh, thanks to Duncan Barton for the image. Thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music. And thanks to John H. for the question. I will be back this afternoon where I'm going to be summing up a lot of the stuff that I think about the 19th century by asking that question. I'm probably going to get in my orals. What's up with organizations in the 19th century? I'll speak you then.